The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday, January 6th, 2022. We are more than a month into the Major League Baseball lockout, and we are getting a couple of perspectives on what has transpired since December 1st, which is not much. Both the league and the players union have barely spoke and there are no scheduled meetings between either party. And it doesn't seem that major league baseball has a great deal of urgency to get a deal done. So what's going on? Well, we are going to parse through some of the reporting from Jeff Passett on ESPN Max Scherzer, who is part of the Major League Baseball Players Association subcommittee leading talks from the players' perspective, he just sat down with the LA Times for a Q&A that provided more insight on what the players are, are seeking. And there's also some Major League Baseball broadcasting news to discuss. Joining me as the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I forgot to do this in our last podcast when we reviewed Andrew Vaughn's season uh what a topic to kick off our ninth year podcasting together yeah i imagine if we did this long enough we'd run into some kind of lockout or strike or something to get in the way it was only a matter of time so why not the ninth season yeah absolutely i i just i just thought about that it's like oh my gosh next year it's gonna be 10 years like how long have i been doing something for 10 plus years and one of those is going to be podcasting with you, buddy. All right. All right. So January 6th, 2022, this day outside of sports holds great meaning, uh, especially for those that live in Washington, D.C. But for baseball, there's still plenty of time for the league and the Players Association to sit down, talk, and create a new CBA before spring training starts as pitchers and catchers are scheduled to report around Valentine's Day, February 14th. But again, what's being reported is that neither side is talking to one another. What do you make of that? I make of it that 
you know, it's it's a game of chicken right now. And that's, uh, I guess, like any kind of negotiation, like you hear about it when it comes to salary negotiations, the, pers- the first person to mention the number loses. And, then, you know, I, th- I think that's probably... Uh, doesn't isn't as true as it used to be if it ever was true, but there's always the yeah strength in waiting, strength in not having to act. Uh, at least that's the way teams and and leagues and players posture, and it's probably true just because we at least on the player side, I guess last year it, w- it was shown that uh, you know between the league and the players trying to negotiate the shortened season or how short the season needed to be. The league waited as long as possible and then tried to maintain the position that uh, they had the most interest in uh, having the most games all along. And it wasn't the players who uh, uh, were the reason why the season didn't start earlier. And that didn't really hold uh, hold water because the teams were trying to limit the amount of games, like to 60 or 80. And the players were trying to go for 110, 120, something in that area where they had like a lot of double headers scheduled. And it, it turned out that, you know, the ultimately both sides, I think, got what they wanted a little bit. The uh, league got 60 games, uh, which you know, was on the lower side, but the players got paid entirely. You know, they, they had their contracts honored, prorated straight, but just they, they didn't have to make any concessions when it came to being paid. So to me, it seems like, you know, they're just doing that over again <laughs> and that, um, you know, if you can wait until the second half of January, if you can wait for the start of spring training to loom, you know, on, on one hand, the players can want to find their homes and want to make sure they have contracts in line, especially all the free agents and all the players who might be traded. And so teams might say, okay, we're going to put the screws to the players to, you know, make them want to come to the table faster and, and, and get less of what they want. And on the other side, players are saying, well, if we wait until spring training, we don't lose revenue until opening day because we're not paid until April. Whereas teams are losing revenue when it comes to uh, spring training, um, you know, whether it's tickets sold or for the teams that have, you know, the regional sports networks and have all their spring training games aired, you know, that's losing ratings, losing advertising. So I think both sides feel like they have a reason to wait to see if, uh, you know, the time pressure gets them to bend faster. So it seems like a fairly standard, you know, it's unpopular and it kind of loses the big picture of like, oh, you know, nobody's interested in baseball right now because nobody's doing anything. But uh, when it comes to just, you know, two sides that really dislike each other and want to try to extract the most possible out of this round of negotiations, then... Yeah, that's kind of where we are. I'm glad you mentioned the 2020 talks just to have that season because we had Evan Marshall of the Chicago White Sox. He was kind enough to join our show in 2020 to share the players' perspective. The players wanted an 81-game season, and then it it shrunk to a 60-game season because it took like 27 days in negotiations between the league and the Players Association just to agree on a plan for 2020, let's say they meet often from this point on over the next 27 days. Well, that puts you past February 1st. It puts you at February 2nd. You would still have the general managers of the front offices. They would have about 10, 12 days to make trades, sign free agents before pitchers and catchers report to their spring training facilities. I would figure that would maybe be enough time to do 
quite a bit of work, maybe not all of the work, and some of the contracts would have to be signed during spring training, but that's nothing new. We have seen that recently, especially with some marquee free agents like Bryce Harper and Manny Machado sign uh, into spring training, for example, and you still got Carlos Correa out there uh, as a free agent. But this isn't discussing CDC requirements or how many games we're playing. There are some serious issues that both parties want to work out through, and especially the economics. And I don't think 27 days is enough, Jim. That That's mm-hmm. kind of how I feel. And after what has been reported and the conversations that have been had, I, I am feeling less confident in my prediction that we would have a new CBA by February 1st. Now I'm thinking we may be lucky as fans and media and for those that enjoy the sport if there's a new CBA by March 1st. I, I do see this going into spring training games. And this was a treadmill thought while I was walking on the treadmill. And I don't know if you know the answer to this question, so I'm just going to pop it out into the open. And you wrote about this on Sox Machine that the non-40-man roster players can still report to camp. You, you could still have minor league camp. Mm-hmm. Because those players are not part of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Can they play those spring training games? That's a good question. I, I think they probably could. Or at least, you know, they can, you know, if they're not using the, you know, maybe if they can't play maybe the games as scheduled, I don't see why they couldn't just, you know, whip up an alternate schedule just between the two teams or, you know, the, the, the two organizations in questions and just have their minor leaguers go on the, the uh, major league field and play. Like, you know, maybe there's, you know, there are rules against, you know, filling the TV schedule as is, but you know, when it comes to the facilities being used, it would seem like they would have full run of it, just like they had full run of it last year when they, uh, when the minor leaguers had spring training in April, um, while the major leaguers had spring training in February and March. That's kind of how I was thinking about it was, you know, with the Omicron virus uh, or variant um, kind of taking charge right now and uh, putting a whole bunch of leagues into chaos, uh, it, it would seem like baseball, you know, should this uh, still be surging or you know, be a part of everyday life come mid-February, would teams want to have the two-step spring training like they had last year, which seemed to do pretty well. I mean, all, all things considered, Major League Baseball did really well last year to get the season uh, played to completion with no real interruptions or uh, drama in that regard. So it seemed like it worked. Um, so yeah, maybe you know, with a new variant uh, posing threats to even you know, vaccinated teams and teams that have followed the protocols well last year, they might just want to do the same thing in which... Uh, you know, if minor leaguers are the only ones there, that would make it a lot harder to do. Like you would figure that if it does bleed into March and the minor leaguers are already ready to go by February, like just, you know, it, it would seem like you wouldn't send them home and have them come back. So uh, I haven't seen anything about that. Uh, you know, minor league teams have been acting as though, you know, they're, they're promoting their April schedules and uh, major league baseball hasn't you know, no reporters have brought up the idea of a two-step spring training and, you know, perhaps there are so many other fish to fry that it's not really a priority for anybody to mention right now. It's just something that came to mind for me, uh, just wondering, just because like, it seemed to work pretty well last year with the Major League Spring Training Camp. Uh, they seem to have all the players necessary. Um, you know, minor league teams seemed okay starting the season in May and, and having it run into September. So that was just me thinking aloud. I ask because spring training tickets are now on sale. 
at Camelback Ranch. So for White Sox fans that make the journey down to Glendale, Arizona to see the White Sox during late February and all of March, maybe some of them have already bought tickets or they are going to be buying tickets. The first spring training game for the White Sox is Saturday, February 26th against Oakland. And that's why I pose that question. Can they still mm-hmm. play that game as scheduled, but it's with the non 40 man roster players. It's with the players that are in the minor league camp. Yeah, it's possible. I just wonder, you know, if they don't have, or, you know, if they don't have the players they thought they'd have on hand, you know, might they tweak things? Right. So if, this thought, let's say if this becomes true, they're kind of using the minor league players as scabs to fulfill the contract that the teams have with the cities, the host cities in Arizona and Florida to continue to have these games. So it's like the owners may have a backup plan. Like if my, my thought slash assumption is correct, that the non 40 man minor league players can continue to play these spring training games that are on the current schedule. Then yeah, the, the spring training games are going to go on, but we're not going to see the major leaguers play. Instead, you're going to see the minor leaguers play and that's going to create some kind of awkward situation between the two parties, as far as the major leaguers and the minor leaguers. Yeah, it's possible that given, um, you know, how Major League Baseball tried in 1994 to have replacement players and it was, it was struck down like it wasn't allowed, there might be, you know, things prohibiting them from using minor league players for like TV ratings. I can still see the games being played, but when it comes to, you know, actually airing and presenting games as between the White Sox and the Dodgers or the White Sox and the Diamondbacks or something like that. There might be something preventing minor league players who are just doing their jobs, you know, reporting when told and having no promise of any kind of major league riches the way replacement players were. Like you, you wouldn't want to see them in a position of, uh, you know, being framed as scabs, even if they're not doing anything wrong. Right. Yeah, that's that is a good concern. So that was that was one of my treadmill thoughts. Uh, but this is interesting on what Jeff Pass had reported on ESPN.com on January 5th. And this goes back to the day of the lockout, December 1st. And Jeff Passan wrote, quote, earlier in the day, Major League Baseball had said it wanted to talk about core economics, but only on condition that those discussions not include any changes to the six-year reserve period of free agency, the arbitration system, or revenue sharing. And the Players Association would not agree to that condition. So seven minutes into that conversation on December 1st, there was nothing left to discuss between the parties and Major League Baseball left the hotel. It did not return. And then the deadline passed and Major League Baseball unanimously voted to enter into a lockout. All right. So we have some perspective from the league and we have heard the quotes from Rob Manfred as well around early December, Jim, that he shared his thoughts that he does not want to see any type of path where a player could reach free agency within five years. Cause he just doesn't think it's fair to the fans, which is complete BS. Uh, but if these are non-starters for the league, then I can understand why neither party can even agree upon speaking. If these are going to be non-starters for the league, because these are very much the core issues that the players association wants to negotiate, especially the reserve period of free agency in the arbitration system. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, 
when it comes to the negotiations and the heart of it, um, you know, I mentioned this before when, um, when talking about just, you know, service time manipulation and, you know, all the arguments we had over Luis Robert and Eloy Jimenez and Nick Madrigal and just, you know, these players being held out for service time reasons. And, uh, some fans were pro player and wanting to see them called up regardless of, you know, the extra year. And some fans were pro front office and saying, uh, it's the, you know, Rick Hahn can do what he wants in this regard. And it should have been up to the players and negotiate better. Well, uh, now it's time for them to negotiate better. So it's a case where this is what it's going to look like. You know, the opposite of, you know, or just the absence of a, a labor war in past years doesn't mean labor peace. Uh, and, and and there hasn't been peace. And we all saw this coming. And so it makes sense that, you know, players would want to get to the heart of it. And it does seem like if, you know, I think Max Scherzer put this in his Q&A uh, that, that you referred to that, you know, when they're talking about the, grand bargain and the idea that in the whole idea of the cost controlled six years and the league minimum for three years and then arbitration suppressed salaries the next three years like the whole idea that players put up with that was because in the end uh the players who thrived through those six to seven years uh got paid in free agency and now some players are but most players at least you know when it comes to like the good ones not the great ones find it tough for sledding and you know Scherzer's like that's fine but you know if compensation is paying players for their prime and you know and, and the prime is considered earlier and uh players are not counting on getting paid for their past performance the way they used to then they have to get paid for their current performance earlier and it makes sense you know it's a logical part especially when we've seen the way service time has been wielded against players so it's, you know, I, I know Rob Manfred has been talking about just, you know, all the things that are non-starter, but just um, it's hard to treat as a non-starter just because we've seen it being wielded gladly against players, um, you know, whether it's um, you know, service time, whether it's tanking and, you know, why do teams need to get better if uh, it's in their uh, interest to win 65 games instead of 75? You know, just, you know, all these arguments that have been had by fans uh, have been felt at the player level and at the front office level. So yeah, I mean, this is what we've been bickering about for the last four years or, or two rebuild periods. If you go even back further and um, you know, now it has to be at the table. So continuing in Passon's piece, he surveyed one owner, two league officials, two general managers, an assistant GM, four players, a union official and two free agents and ask them what they thought could be a path to some type of agreement between the players and the league. And the seven points that they came up with is one raise the minimum salaries to around $650,000. So that's a 14% bump Add a performance bonus for any pre-arbitration players. I imagine Jim, that's if a player, like Chris Bryant, he, Chris Bryant is being used as a an example. We'll talk more about Chris Bryant uh, being an example uh, from Max Scherzer in a moment later in this show. But I imagine winning Rookie of the Year, winning MVP, winning Cy Young, All Star, Silver Slugger. There's there's an opportunity for performance bonus. That's that's I that's what I'm imagining, right? Could it be something else? No, I think that's basically it's just rewarding the. Vlad Juniors and Tatis Juniors of the world. Implement the universal designated hitter, which both parties want. So 
Universal DH is coming. I'm sorry, Jim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I have a bigger contention with point. Four. Yeah. Point four. Expand the postseason from 10 to 14 teams. Boo. So seven teams for each league. Remove indirect draft pick compensation for free agents. Make significant changes to the Major League Baseball draft to avoid tanking and reward small markets. That's where I'm going to boo because you know what they count as a small market is the St. Louis Cardinals and they benefit Mm -hmm. in all this crap. Uh, (laughs) That just kind of makes me angry. Uh, And then raise the uh, collective bargaining tax threshold into the 230 million plus range. So the teams that were using the collective bargaining tax, uh, I think it's like $210 million. They were treating that as a salary cap. So if you increase it to 230 million, Will the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, the Mets, the Phillies, those types of teams, will they spend 10, 20 million more on players to make their teams better? So those are the seven points based on the survey that they think is a path uh, to get a deal done. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but I could say the whole changing up the Major League Baseball draft, that's a lot of work. Raising the collective bargaining tax threshold could be a lot of work. The only easy thing is the DH. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. the easy one out of the seven. Expanding the postseason. You want to expand postseason? Fantastic. We also want to expand the postseason revenue to include the television shares as well to the players. That's a sticky point between the two parties. Uh, I think these are good ideas. Is there anything else that you would add, Jim, that you think would be a path to some type of labor piece between the league and the players? Well, the uh, postseason is, uh, you know, also a double-edged sword because, you know, team, if you expand the postseason, it makes more teams think they can get in it, but it also means that more teams might settle instead of trying to make themselves great. Um, You know, they only might settle for good, like the White Sox, perhaps. Uh, You know, just... Uh, you know, if they feel like they don't need to improve right field or second base because they'll win 88 games regardless, and that'll be good enough to be one of the top seven teams. Like that's, that's I think what the fear is with expanding the postseason. But it seems to make sense. You know, lar- you know, by and large, like it's you know gains for the players, but not you know depending on what happens with the draft. Um, you know, whether that's like flipping the order of the draft or you know, reducing the amount of times a team can draft in the top three or the top five, you know, just to not reward like the Orioles of the world from losing, you know, 105 games plus four years in a row. It, it seems, you know, to have enough of what uh, the sides want without completely caving to players and not like, you know, accelerating free agency uh, the way that, um, you know, players want. And, uh, but it does seem to reverse the losses that players have suffered. Uh, and, you know, maybe takes the sting out of service time manipulation too. So it's, there are some things that are appealing. And, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, you can see this like bleeding into May or March rather. I think the one thing I wonder is, you know, given that there is the, uh, you know, looming pitchers and catchers reporting spring training games, what have you, um, you know, those deadlines, soft deadlines, but revenue, uh, inclusive deadlines uh being considered i wonder if every you know if both sides you know negotiating parties have like this kind of proposal in their pocket ready to roll out or ready to accept um just waiting to see which side blinks first and then saying like okay now we're talking we both like this you know and and 
you know, so it, it comes together faster than, you know, we think, but that would require, you know, players to maybe back off some of their stronger stances. And the one thing I'm kind of keeping an eye on here is when I'm thinking of like previous dra- uh, previous, you know, CBA negotiations and what were the wedge issues that the league wielded against the players union. One was uh, steroid testing, uh, you know, PED testing. And uh, there were factions of players that, um, you know, were very much uh, more vocal than others when it came to uh, testing and punishing players who had violated uh, steroid testing. And so they were able to get the players broken up a little bit. And then the other wedge issue was the international draft and how, um, you know, especially on the international side that uh, players who came up uh, with the choice of having their pick of where to sign uh, did not want to give that away and not want to have their rights drafted by teams. And so that was turned into a wedge issue among the union. Uh, This time around, there doesn't seem to be that obvious uh, just area where Major League Baseball can apply pressure and get the union to crack a little bit. Like I think, you know, everybody is more or less uh, content with the way a PED punishment is. And we haven't heard anything about the international draft. It's all been a domestic draft. So uh, I wonder, you know, if that's why we're hearing so much about time and, and about not bringing proposals to the table is that waiting is all Major League Baseball has. That's a really good point. That's a really good point, Jim. There's more from the player's perspective. As Jim mentioned, Max Scherzer sat down with the LA Times, and we're going to discuss a little bit more on the insight that Max Scherzer provided after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Earlier this week, New York Mets starting pitcher Max Scherzer that's going to take some time uh, to get that down for the 2022 season. He did an interview with writer Jorge Castillo of the Los Angeles Times to discuss the player's perspective for these talks. 
Scherzer is part of the eight-player subcommittee with Andrew Miller, Marcus Simeon, Zach Britton, James Paxton, Jason Castro, Francisco Lindor, and Garrett Cole. The central point of negotiations from the Players Association is the tanking by Major League Baseball teams. That central issue, from their perspective, branches out to all the things that they want to change. Rebuild teams are not competitive at free agency, and on top of not spending on money on veterans, they are manipulating service time of players to prevent them from re- reaching free agency earlier. And we have spoken a great deal about service manipulation on this podcast over the years. Jim, this quote from Scherzer caught my attention, and he said, quote, as far for the service time manipulation part, there are other forms of it beyond the obvious Chris Bryant example. Teams are putting long-term discounted extensions in front of players before a player even makes his debut. They're told, take the extension and you will be in the big leagues tomorrow, but if you don't sign it, you will stay in the minor leagues. Playing in the big leagues is everyone's dreams, and teams are now leveraging that desire to gain financial control over a player's career. That's why the Chris Bryant grievance case is so important to all of us players, because if it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. Huh. Know any teams, Jim, that may fit that description (laughs) that Scherzer's talking about? Yeah, a little bit. And, and, you know, writing about it at the time and and having seen uh, the White Sox uh, justifications for uh, not calling up Luis Robert, not calling up an Eloy Jimenez, having the whole, you know, checking the boxes thing, uh, working on defense thing, you know, having, you know, pretending, um, you know, certain veterans like Cody Ashies of the world are worth uh, playing above other players. Like, you know, we, we saw that, you know, being worked out. And then sure enough, you know, like Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert were not part of opening day plans until they signed the contracts. And all of a sudden their development was not an issue. Uh, Eloy Jimenez's bad spring training was not an issue when he signed in mid-March. So, I mean, clearly that was the case that it worked out. I think the one thing maybe sparing the White Sox a little bit is that they hold the records for spending on pre players without any kind of major league experience, like the kind of contracts extension sign, like no, teams have rivaled them when it comes to the amount of money they've been willing to spend on an Eloy Jimenez or a Luis Robert. So they have incurred some risk to at least make it not, you know, as exploitative as maybe we thought it might be, or the way other teams, like I'm thinking like the John Singleton, that, that's kind of the marker, I think uh, is the John Singleton issue um, with the Astros. And I think I'm trying to, maybe it's Kevin Goldstein or someone like that in fan graphs is talking about how the, John Singleton one was even sketchier in some ways because they the team knew he had a marijuana issue. Uh, and, and so they wanted him to be subject to Major League Baseball's marijuana testing rather than minor league baseball's marijuana testing because it's a little bit uh, you know, more forgiving. And so like, yeah, that's another thing they were leveraging against. Like, we know you have a weed problem, so if you sign now, it'll be, you know, it, it was a little bit sketchier and, and maybe just a little bit insensitive in terms of somebody's, you know substance issues so yeah just uh we've seen teams do it worse that's not an excuse for the white Sox doing it just much but at least it seems like when it came to jimenez and robert negotiating and how no teams have rivaled them that their agents and representatives have at least done a little bit better job uh getting 
not, if not market value, at least something closer to market value for their clients. Well, the Aloy Jimenez situation, or let me know if I'm wrong, but wasn't Aloy sent to minor league camp? Yes. And then it was like a day or two, and then he signs the extension. Yes. So what Scherzer is talking about is if you don't sign this contract extension, you're going to the minor leagues. That situation totally happened with the White Sox at Aloy Jimenez. Yes. And I believe I wrote about it too when when Chris Bryant's grievance was starting to gain some you know steam towards resolution. Yeah. So again, we just had a podcast talking about Andrew Vaughn and the White Sox handled Andrew Vaughn completely different from Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert and former White Sox, former friend Nick Madrigal handled him completely different, which is why we dedicated a whole podcast episode about it. But with what Scherzer is saying, what caught my attention is that and Rick Hahn's not alone. The Atlanta Braves also have some sketchy contracts with Ozzie Albies and Ronda Cunha Jr. But I believe the GM that signed those deals is has been banned from baseball. <laughs> well, that's for a different matter. Yeah, the, the, the Acuna yeah. thing is one. The, the Albies one is a lot more uh, punitive towards uh, a young player. Yeah. What I'm getting at is the Players Association... What happened to Aloy Jimenez and, in, in a way, Luis Robert did not go unnoticed mm-hmm. from the Players Association. May also contribute to the reason why Lucas Giolito hasn't signed any type of contract extension or why we haven't seen the White Sox sign any type of pre-arbitration contract extension uh, since Luis Robert. I think Yoan Makata was last, but Makata was reaching arbitration, if I remember correctly, uh, before he signed uh, his contract extension with the White Sox. And there's more from this excellent piece from the LA Times. And there's a lot here. Uh, again, we're just parsing through. But from Scherzer's perspective and from the, the Players Association perspective, it goes right back to tanking because Scherzer makes great points. The tanking increases the slot value of your draft picks and you get a bigger draft pool. So the more games you lose, the bigger draft pool that you get, which is absolutely true. You don't sign the free agents that you have, the really good players. You let them walk. You can gain more draft picks, which increases the draft pool, which is absolutely true. Uh, Then you have the whole international pool that you could take advantage of. Uh, And then you can manipulate service time where you can find a way to buy an extra year of service. So instead of a player reaching free agency at six years, it's seven years. And again, Chris Bryant is used as the example. And Chris Bryant in that seventh year with the Cubs ended up getting traded to the mm-hmm. San Francisco Giants. So the Cubs didn't even get to take advantage of that seventh year, really. So that is what the Players Association, when they get back to the table and they work through their channels working with the league, this is something that they really want to address with Major League Baseball is changing these rules in the CBA to prevent this type of tanking because it's not good for the Players Association. And Jim, it's it's not good for the sport. And I mm-hmm. know we talked about the, the playoff expansion from 10 to 14 teams, and it is a double-edged sword because maybe one year we do see an 80 and 82 win team, a below 500 team, be the seventh seed and make the postseason one year. We would see that. But other than the postseason expansion and radically changing how the Major League Baseball draft works, do you think there are other paths 
that the league and players association can maybe negotiate into the CBA. I'm not sure if a salary floor is possible without, uh, you know, the players having to accept some kind of harder salary cap than the competitive balance tax threshold. That's, I think, the one thing that might impact the way tanking teams operate is if they have to spend, like, say, $80 million on a payroll or $100 million on a payroll, whatever number you throw out there, like, makes it a bit more compelling um, to sign free agents and perhaps free agents they can trade, you know, and, and maybe they don't plan to hold on to them for that long, but at least they spend money and increase interest in free agents that are perfectly good players, but just don't have the juice to help a team that's uh, with a losing record, get to a winning record. The other thing I wonder about is when it comes to the draft, like trading draft picks and if a rebuilding team could hoard draft picks, if they could trade, yes. um, you know, like, like say the Orioles could trade like an Anthony Santander for draft picks. If they could just, you know, have six picks, seven picks in the first two rounds somehow, like if they could somehow acquire that, would that accelerate rebuild processes faster to just, you know, make it hurt for one year, but just allow teams to, if they want to rebuild and, and see like they're reaching a dead end with their current roster just have the flexibility to put all their resources into the draft for one year rather than making it like a three, four year process, even like one to two years to be an improvement over what's currently the situation now. So that's one thing I haven't seen discussed, but trading draft picks, I think, for teams that want them, desperately want them, uh, and, and want that draft pool being large, I wonder if that's something that could maybe take a bite out of tanking itself. Because even like, I'm thinking of a team like the White Sox in their first rebuild, like the Samarja White Sox, tried like hell to get to the, uh, you know, postseason ill-advised way, especially given all the leadership issues they had in the roster, but they tried to get to 85 wins. They got 78. Well, if the White Sox didn't want to completely tear it down, you know, one year to the next, like, could they have gotten draft picks? You know, could they have gotten, you know, a couple more draft picks to kind of walk that line better between like trying to get that team with a interesting core over the hump while also not sacrificing draft capital because they found a way to add draft picks. Like that seems to me like one thing I'm not seeing discussed, but you know, when we heard about the draft before and not trading draft picks, it was because they didn't want teams with uh, smaller markets to uh, lose out to teams that could spend more or teams that could somehow just hoard draft picks. It never really worked out that way. Like the teams that benefited from the uncapped draft were smaller market teams that just figured out that was the most cost-effective way to spend. So I'm wondering if they somehow prevent or, or uh, no longer prohibit draft picks from being traded, would the small market teams like the Rays, uh, like the, uh, like say like the Royals, um, you know, other teams that have found success with leveraging draft picks or, or you know, liking what they've seen from their draft picks and, and minor league systems, like could they keep going even if the rebuilds are th theoretically over? And that would be fine. That seems like it should be fine. And I wonder for contending teams where if they get into these negotiations, Jim, if they'd be more willing to say, instead of giving you my best prospect, I'm willing to give you my first round pick in next year's Major League Baseball draft. Well, I'm wondering, like, would the White Sox, say the Kimbrel trade, instead of trading Magical, they trade their first round pick. Mm -hmm. And would that be sufficient enough for... Yeah the Chicago Cubs. Yeah. I mean, but in the Cubs case, they're tanking, but you don't want, yeah, you know, I would say major league baseball doesn't want a team like the Cubs tanking for that long because they sell a lot of tickets and they draw a lot of ratings. And when their attendance takes a hit, like the league takes a hit as a whole, when it comes to year over year attendance numbers, like 
it would seem to benefit like, you know, small market teams, large market teams, everybody, if they could, you know, acquire draft picks when they want, desperately want those draft picks. Yeah. Cause the other aspect of the tanking, and we have talked about this as well, is the bottoming out of the payrolls. Right now, there are three teams as the national television contracts think ESPN, Fox, Turner. These contracts, the money that Major League Baseball makes on these television deals, the national television deals, they are shared equally between the 30 ball clubs. And the estimate, I think, going to 2022 is about $55 million per team is receiving in the national television shared revenue pool. Three teams, as we speak on January 6th, have player payrolls below $55 million. The Hmm. Pittsburgh Pirates, the Baltimore Orioles, and a bit surprising, but not really, the Cleveland Guardians. The national television deals are paying for the entire player payroll of these three teams. Not local TV, not local radio, not a fan entering their stadium. The player payroll is already paid for by the national television deal in which these three teams would barely be on national television. So Mm -hmm. thanks to the teams that are really good and always on national TV, these three teams are benefiting, they're greatly benefiting from it. Uh, They get to bottom out their payroll because they could say we are rebuilding. We're not trying to be competitive in 2022. We're trying to get as many great young prospects to get you, the fans and media hyped about. So maybe in three to four years, we're going to be really good and we'll have a contention window, much like the Cubs have had and the Houston Astros and the Chicago White Sox are currently in their contention window. And I could see where the Players Association would say that's crap. (laughs) before Mm -hmm. a fan enters your stadium, before you make a dime from your local television contracts and your local radio contracts that your player payroll is already paid for. I mean, then everything else, you know, maybe use the gate revenue to pay for your stadium operations. Everything else is profit. It's going to the owner's pockets and in the case of the, of a franchise like the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Cleveland Guardians, these are franchises that have proven time and time again they don't spend. They just continue to pocket all of these profits. So what rebuilding and tanking does for many of the Major League Baseball franchises is that it just increases profit margins. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that they're going to be good in three to four years. So I totally get the perspective of Max Scherzer and the Players Association where they are making the tanking situation the central discussion with everything that they are aiming for in a new CBA to try to eliminate what, honestly, Theo Epstein drew up as the blueprint for teams to follow when he took the gig with the Chicago Cubs. And that's why I find it still interesting that the commissioner's office hired Theo Epstein to assist in trying to make the sport better when it Mm -hmm. honestly, you know, honestly in 2022, while his plan has worked and the plan has worked for many franchises, including the Chicago white Sox copy and pasting it, that it's not a great long-term plan. And you kind of come to this breaking point 
where I could see the owners not wanting to budge away from this blueprint because again, many owners are making more profit than they were before and they don't want to lose that. But I can understand where the players are like, we have no interest in playing a league that wants to operate like this. Yeah, and I can see that trying to be used as, you know, I mentioned the wedge issues and how there's a lack of a, lack of one, it seems, for the players aside from time pressures. I'm wondering if when it comes to the other way, when it comes to players trying to find a wedge issue with the, with, with the teams, with the owners, whether having those teams at the bottom of the payroll scale, um, Guardians and, and uh, the Pirates, like if they're being subsidized by national deals and by you know, revenue sharing, and they're not really having to put any of their own money into the teams and not being punished for it. Like, you know, they don't, you know, and, and that's one, I think thing that's changed with uh, the current era of baseball versus even like a decade or two ago is just how rich teams get without needing fans to factor in at all. Like they're all profitable, whether it's the network deals, whether it's the casino deals, like uh, teams are so flush with cash that they don't, they don't even need to try in order to, you know, have a profit. So I, I think when it comes to, you know, maybe just teams feeling like they're like a team like the Yankees or Dodgers or Phillies, you know, if they you know go over the uh, competitive balance threshold and have to pay tax and then the teams at the bottom who are receiving it are not putting it in their payroll. Like they might feel like they're being, uh, you know, why are they being punished for spending if the teams at the bottom are not being punished for not investing that money in their teams and, and, and making their team, you know, teams more competitive. Like what's the deal with that? So that's, I'm wondering maybe why, you know, Scherzer is emphasizing it so much, not just because it's a, you know, it, it's very much at the core of why some free agents are finding it really tough these days, but also just that, um, you know, it's maybe one area where owners might disagree amongst themselves. And this brings the topic of the salary floor, right? Like if you set the salary floor at a hundred million dollars, I'm on spottrack.com right now, you have more teams with a $75 million payroll, which is 10 teams right now below $75 million payroll. Mm -hmm. You have nine teams that have 150 million or more payroll. And the Chicago White Sox are one of those nine teams. So already, if you increase the salary floor to $100 million, and the Chicago Cubs are at 98 million after signing uh, Marcus Stroman, uh, you got 12 teams, Jim. You got 12 teams that would need to spend some serious cash to to hit that salary floor or pay the penalties for not spending enough. And as a fan, I have to say, okay, this makes sense. Is this good enough for the players? I don't know if it's good enough for the players. And I, I don't know if you can get all of the owners on board to approve such a deal. I think it's, yeah, I think it's good for the players. I think it's more, uh, tougher for the uh, you know owners to agree just because they don't want to be, you know, like we saw the Cubs tank and feel like it was made sense to, especially with, you know, the way the, I, I guess with the other pursuits they've taken real estate deals and such, and the amount of, you know, leveraging they've done to make Wrigleyville happen. Like other teams might be in a similar situation to where they're off field pursuits or they're, a uh, desire to build a neighborhood around the stadium just might be take a bigger priority than what they're actually putting into the team. And so if they want to take a year off from spending, uh, even if they're in, in you know, flush with cash and doing well right now, you know, just might make sense that they want the freedom 
to pursue, like the White Sox might want the freedom to pursue their own Cobb County type situation where, you know, the Braves are, you know, building a neighborhood out of nothing. Like, you know, maybe the White Sox want to do that or, you know, who knows? So I think that's a tough sell for, for the league, but I think it, it makes sense for the players to emphasize that enough to at least, you know, just keep raising the topic of teams just being financed entirely by things they're not responsible for, which is other teams spending and other teams doing well enough to, uh, have these marquee matchups that get paid for by networks. And out of those 12 teams below a hundred million dollar payroll, uh, the Kansas city Royals have a payroll about 73 million. The Minnesota twins have a payroll of about 72 million. And again, Cleveland has a $29 million player payroll right now. $29 million. The white Sox. I leverage relievers are more than what Cleveland is paying for their entire roster. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm thinking like the guardians would be another good example of like a team that might've benefited from being able to add draft picks instead of prospects, you know, when trading Francisco Lindor or trading Carlos Carrasco, like especially given how good they are, it's uh, turning second day draft picks into uh, notable arms. Like they might've been happy to trade like a, um, Carlos Carrasco for like a sixth round draft pick or Eddie Rosario for, you know, a ninth rounder or something like that, just to, um, you know, give themselves young players to try to develop the way they've had successes, uh, with the Shane Bieber's and Aaron Savali's of the world. And then the last point from the player's perspective, since 2017, the total amount of salary to all players in the league has been going down. It's a five-year downward trend. So it's peaked at 2017, and it's gone down Mm -hmm. since. While Major League Baseball revenues have increased, obviously there's, you know, the 2020 factor. But all these new television deals and all this new gambling money that's coming in, revenues are on the the increase for Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is going to be more than a $12 billion league. Uh, heading to 2022 and beyond. So if salaries continue to get lower or on a downward trend and the league's making more money, then yeah, I can understand where the players, but they don't want, they don't want to be tied into the revenue though. That's something that Max Scherzer did point out. They don't want to follow the path of the NFL or the NBA in which the salaries are tied to the revenue that the league is generating. They don't want to do that. And I, I do find that aspect pretty tricky from the Players Association. But it, it's really good insight. And again, we'll have mm-hmm. this link uh, on the podcast page on SoxMachine.com. There's more from Max Scherzer that I highly recommend that you get his perspective. Because again, he's part of this eight-player subcommittee. So when they meet again, the league and the Players Association, the lead negotiator of the Players Association from that meeting is going to Max Scherzer and they are having those discussions. So Max Scherzer is as close to the central point of the conversation that we have right now as far as any source that's publicly spoken about what the players are seeking in a new CBA. So that's where we are as far as the lockout situation. It doesn't appear that it's going to be concluded anytime soon, which is a, a bit depressing. So Again, we'll keep tabs on it on SoxMachine.com. A couple other points before we sign off on this episode on the broadcasting front. Uh, One, this got a lot of press earlier this week. Ken Rosenthal, uh, his contract was not picked up by MLB Network. 
And it's being reported from the New York Post that it stems from a column that Rosenthal wrote in 2020, uh, providing some, I would call it mild criticism, Jim, of Commissioner Rob Manfred. And I it was lost on me that Ken Rosenthal served some type of three-month suspension before he came back on the MLB network. Uh, and then he worked the 2021 season and his contract expired at the end of the calendar year. Uh, and the league just let it expire and he's not going back to MLB network. And this is this this has caused a, a bit of an outrage, especially in social media, wondering what the league is doing here with Ken Rosenthal, and especially as far as their channel MLB Network. Some are suggesting that now it's just the propaganda channel uh, for Major League Baseball. I find myself enjoying MLB Network. We are lucky to have Steven Nelson, uh, who's a big White Sox fan. He joined this show. He works for MLB Network, and Intentional Talk uh, is on MLB Network uh, they provide plenty of opinions on players and how teams are operating. Uh, but I, evidently, you know, supposedly Ken Rosenthal crossed this line criticizing the commissioner, and now he's not going to do TV for the league's network. How do you feel about all of this? Well, you know, when it comes to the outrage, I think it's, you know, when it comes to Twitter, like every writer is on Twitter, every sports journalist on Twitter. So things that are media related or like, you know, insult on, you know, Ken Rosenthal or just, you know, media rights or rights in the league is just a bigger issue, I think, in Twitter than it is probably in real life just because of the population on Twitter that is intimately involved or connected to or, uh, you know, is part of sports media or follows it closely. To me, you know, I think the league's attitude towards its properties became relatively known and, and kind of nakedly so when it came to the lockout and just all news of current players being stripped from MLB.com properties and, you know, not allowing Scott Merkin or Mike Petriello or Sarah Langs to talk about current players on Twitter. And so you're having like, you know, the, the uh, uh, Jeff Passan said like every MLB page looks like a GeoCities page right now, given the references. And you have Scott Merkin talking to Brian Anderson again, because Brian Anderson is not a major league player. He's coaching for Arizona and just they're digging deep to try to find relevant storylines for franchises without being able to, you know, talk to the players or talk about even the players who uh, fans care about right now. You know, fans care about in the year 2022. So to me, you know, when it comes to MLB network and MLB properties, like it's clear, you know, what side they're ultimately on, or what side they have to toe, and without you know getting uh, their their wrists wrapped. So I think uh, you know having Ken Rosenthal free from that is probably a good thing. It's not like he lost his job and lost his livelihood. He's you know getting paid by Fox Sports. He's getting paid by the Athletic. He's still findable. He can write more freely. He's doing well. So that doesn't concern me. Uh, but it, it, I think the concern is probably more like you know, Rob Manfred having this kind of clout or caring that much to exercise that kind of clout when he's the least charismatic, least appealing person in Major League Baseball's orbits, I think. You know, maybe, especially league-wide, like, nobody wants to hear him talk. Nobody cares what he thinks. You know, like, he just, uh, whenever he does talk about the game, he exudes no passion for it. He called the World Series trophy a hunk of metal. <laughs> he just has everything, you know, he, he comes off as completely tone deaf when it comes to the whole idea of, 
you know, why the games are played uh, as, as to the, you know, why it appeals to fans. So if he's the, you know, what MLB media and, and their media arms are shaping their coverage to, that's not a good sign for them, but I think it's a good sign. It, it's ultimately beneficial if a guy like Ken Rosenthal can write freely about it without worrying about having his, you know, part of his livelihood damaged by you know, maybe writing something tough but fair about Rob Manfred. Well, Ken Rosenthal still works for Fox Sports. So I don't know like if Fox Sports is going to protect Ken Rosenthal if he just goes on a rampage against Rob Manfred, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but Ken Rosenthal, that's why it's funny that Rosenthal is the guy. Rosenthal is not a bomb thrower. No. He's not, he's like five foot four, wears a bow tie. If, if Manfred's getting intimidated by somebody like him who, you know, is, you know, it writes very fair. Like he has no interest at, you know, I think, you know, he's among sports insiders. Like when you think of like Adam Schefter and Chris Mortensen or, you know, uh, Woj in Sham's uh, scenario, like when it comes to like the basketball insiders, the NFL insiders, like Ken Rosenthal is not as, you know, we're lucky. I think in baseball fans that he's not as gross as those others, all the conflict of interest they have and all the water caring they do. Like he doesn't do, I mean, he writes fair. He writes down the middle. Sometimes like he, you know, you might want to see him tag an owner more or, or, you know, stick, stick up for players more, stick up for something more. Like sometimes he's, he's, you know, maybe exceedingly generous to owners or general managers or what have you, but he's not, he's also fair to players, I think, or maybe generous to players on the other side. Like he does not want to, I think you don't get to the top of your craft if you are going to burn people. He, he doesn't burn people. I think he's pretty fair and he's not incendiary. He's not, uh, uh, you don't hear any stories come out like, Oh, did you hear what Ken Rosenthal said? Like somebody's gonna be pissed. Like that's not the kind of story he writes. He writes, you know, very information based stories. Like he, I think he's more concerned more than anybody else about not having an agenda, not, not having, not being a vehicle for somebody else's agenda by and large. Uh, you know, sometimes he might get sucked into certain ones, but ultimately I think he steers clear of being that, you know, machine voice that like a Schefter is, or that, you know, uh, you know, perhaps a Woj can be, or at least, you know, maybe, you know, Woj is maybe the other side of player agents, but, you know, I think Rosenthal is pretty fair. So if you're getting mad about that guy, you know, what he writes, then I think that poses a problem for like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Jeff Passan isn't going to be like a voice on, you know, I think on MLB.com, but just, uh, they're going to lose their more interesting voices and their more, you know, better reporters if, if this is their attitude, it's just more of a matter of like, are there enough places to make sure that uh, these good reporters can be paid? And that's the hope I think. Yeah. It does raise the question of can Rob Manfred take any constructive criticism? And he's already got the reputation that he doesn't actually like baseball. So that's, that's, that's one that's pretty hard to overcome as a commissioner when people Mm -hmm. are claiming that you don't even like the sport that you're the commissioner of. Uh, but now you can't take criticism, even mild criticism. So now people think you're thin-skinned. I did enjoy this tweet from David Aldridge, who has been writing and covering the NBA for decades. And he tweeted, I worked for Turner Sports, which operated NBA TV and NBA.com in partnership with the league for 14 years. You know what David Stern did when I wrote or said something he didn't like? He called me up and cussed me out. He didn't go to my bosses and try to fire me. And, and that's the difference here. And Aldridge is probably basketball Rosenthal. Yes. Yep. Yep. So 
like very much a down the middle reporter, kind of the voice of the NBA, but also just somebody who was not interested in like pissing people off unnecessarily or for clicks or whatever. Just he was, you know, down the middle. And I think that's how, uh, you know, the, you know, that's how it should be. Like you should have the right to uh, be able to call up a reporter. Like same thing with like players in the clubhouse. They can, you know, you know, reporters should be able to write what they write and then they should be able to go in the clubhouse and, you know, deal with it directly, deal with whatever the reaction is. And, uh, you know, if, if Rosenthal, what he writes and basically saying like, well, uh, it looks like Manfred's losing leverage here when it comes to his ability to get the season. That's basically what he said is like, he basically pointed out that when it comes to the 60 game season and what, and what he's trying to institute, like he doesn't have a lot of leverage here. He better strike a deal. That's basically what he said. It wasn't like Manfred's screwing this up. Manfred's incompetent. He just <laughs> basically just tried to present reality as it was when it comes to just what was bargained and what uh, players had a right to. And that's, I think, what gets messy is that uh, when it comes to uh, just what Manfred's mad about, it's not good if it's just a simple recitation of the facts. And the last media point from the New York Post, who they are doing a terrific job getting these MLB broadcasting stories. Uh, Carl Ravage is set up to be the next play-by-play broadcaster for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball. And it's looking like they're changing up the booth. Uh, Eduardo Perez is to join the Sunday Night Baseball booth along with David Cohn. And if you're thinking, oh, great, I don't have to see Alex Rodriguez anymore. Oh, just wait. Thanks to the popularity of the Manning cast, which I find to be very entertaining, by the way, uh, between Payne Manning and Eli Manning during Monday Night Football games this year. So that was simulcasted on like ESPN2 while Monday Night Football was being played with a regular broadcast on ESPN. ESPN is contemplating giving Alex Rodriguez his own type of show similar to the Manning cast. So Sunday Night Baseball have a simulcast. You can watch the regular broadcast with it being reported. There'll be Carl Ravage, David Cohn, Eduardo Perez calling the game. Or you can watch A-Rod talk about the game and have guests come on and, and talk about whatever on ESPN2. So Jim... Who wants that? <laughs> It's just going to ask you. <laughs> I mean, like I can see like certain, you know, I can see hate watching it and, you know, trying to mystery science theater it. When it comes to the Mannings, like, you know, I think Peyton's always had the charisma and always had the ability to get laughs. He's, he's, he's you know, got comedic timing and he's very much like a, a guy who seems to strike friendships. And we're seeing with Eli that he kind of has the same, even if he wasn't as charismatic during his playing days, like he, you know, they're part of the same family. They have some of the same, uh, you know, characteristics. Like A-Rod does not have magnetism. Like that's not his thing. Like he does not have any kind of charisma. That's been the knock on him his whole career. Like who are his, you know, who does he connect with? Like, is he going to bring, maybe that's how we're going to hear from Jerry Reinsdorf directly is maybe he brings Jerry Reinsdorf on a call. Cause apparently they're good friends, but like, he's, <laughs> you know, he's just been ascending. He's been trying to get into the ownership class, which is fine. But like, he just, uh, right now, it's like he, he's not somebody who's known for holding funny, informative, uh, wry listener first conversations. That's, that's not his thing. So I don't know if they just have a contract with A-Rod and they're figuring out, trying to figure out how to pay him and maybe getting like double <laughs> dipping when it comes to ratings. Yeah. I'm not quite sure, but uh, yeah, 
Uh, I do like the idea of uh, David Cohn's pretty good. Eduardo Perez, I like what I've heard there. So Carl Ravitch, I think, is not maybe that great. Uh, I, I think he's going to... Uh, he has that kind of studio um, background. I think he he's going to contribute to that Sunday Night Baseball as a talk show thing. Um, so I'm not necessarily thrilled about that, but I think Cohn and Perez are good starts, and hopefully just everybody ignores A-Rod, whatever they do with him. I, I will give some credit to Carl Ravage because I, I felt the same way that you did, but he calls the College World Series for ESPN, and he's done a really good job sticking to what's happening on the field. Hmm. So I think what we may get is a more not exact uh, closer to the stat cast broadcast, not completely like the stat cast broadcast with Jason Benetti when he joins and does that with Eduardo Perez. But you have David Cohn who frequently, if you watch the Yankees broadcast on yes, frequently references what he reads on fan graphs and baseball prospectus and using the modern day metrics uh, in collaboration with what he has seen on the field. David Cohn is right up there, I think, with Steve Stone, uh, as far, especially when they're talking about pitching. And we know Eduardo Perez is not afraid of that as well. And I I enjoy when Eduardo Perez uh, filled in for Alex Rodriguez for the White Sox Brewers Sunday night baseball game during 2021. Uh, I really enjoyed as far as his commentary. So I, I would actually look forward to Sunday night baseball if this is the three-man booth I would never watch the Alex Rodriguez show. No, I, no. Even if you paid me extra, Jim. <laughs> I, I think I would, I would tune into it. If like baseball Twitter were saying like, oh my God, this is terrible. Then I think this I would click over wreck. out of curiosity, but yeah, <laughs> probably <laughs> 10 minutes. And then I'd be like, okay, this is enough. Yeah. I unless he, unless he had Jennifer Lopez to join. Or Ben Affleck, then you can have some drama. You can have interpersonal drama, uh, which would be totally inappropriate during a baseball game. You know what? I would not watch it if the White Sox were on Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, that is for sure. So that's something to look forward to whenever the 2022 season starts. And uh, we'll wait to see and what they finalize for that. But that's something to pay attention to for ESPN Sunday Night Baseball uh, in 2022. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you to everyone who listened. I wish that we had better news uh, regarding as far as the Major League Baseball lockout, but it does appear that we're going to have to wait a little bit longer until both sides decide to meet and further negotiations. And we'll see if that does delay spring training at all or if it does delay the 2022 season. Fingers crossed that does not happen. Uh, but if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And either you're new or if you are a Sox Machine lurker, uh, we have seen our Patreon supporters increase during the offseason, which is fantastic. Thank you guys for your continued support. Yes, thank you so much. I was not expecting that. <laughs> I was bracing for uh, people to drop out. So, yeah, it's it's uh, really... Um, like I like I tweet about it's like it's it's gone the opposite of unnoticed highly noticed highly appreciated highly noticed yes uh, and if you are not supporting us on Patreon you can do so at patreon.com slash socks machine where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content they get ad free versions of both the podcast and the website and they get the first opportunity to purchase our new socks machine swag items which we did have the socks machine caps uh the knitted caps are we out of those now we are out 
We are sold out. If you missed out and really want uh, you know, one, let me know just because if I get a critical mass, I can put another order. Uh, but for the time being, you know, I'm out. You're out. All right. So you, maybe a missed opportunity. But again, we'll continue to have new swag items. So if you enjoy your work and want more, go to patreon.com slash socks machine. Sign up today. We have monthly plans starting at $2 a month. Or with it, you know, just a few days after the new year, you can sign up for an annual plan that saves you 9% off from the monthly plans. And again, that's at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.